Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. It's the big awards week in science, so we celebrate achievements from across the world. Now, there's many different types of awards out there, but we're an Australian podcast, so we're going to focus on the Australian top prize, the Eureka Prize, and find out about some great work, both in cases of infectious disease, of tackling it across the world and improving the conditions of millions across the world, with new understandings of disease models and new effective treatments. Now, we've just completed the big award season for science, and of course, you might be thinking of the Nobel Prizes. And unfortunately, we've seen a typical return to form for the Nobel Prizes with, in the STEM fields, all-male winners. Now, that's pretty disappointing. We started to see some progress in the fields of chemistry and physics in more recent years. But it seems that the Nobel Committee, in their selection of winners, whilst picking worthy scientific causes such as climate change, these are great things. But the fact that no women have been recognised yet again in all of the fields is a bit of a disappointment. And that is showing some of the big problems faced by women in the STEM fields. We're getting people in the door, in the pipeline. A lot of great STEM inclusion work has been done to get women interested and engaged with science. And that's done, and that's done great things. But we then lose these people through pipeline leakages, basically, where through systemic issues in the academic and other male-dominated industries, job market and conditions for those jobs, meaning that people are often pushed out particularly women, and this is not great. And one of the reasons why we see in leadership roles in labs and research institutions, lack of women at the top of these organisations. And that builds itself up to the point where you see people only awarding prizes of the major fields, Nobel Prize and others, to be fair, only going to men. And the argument being, well, it's only men who were qualified, only men who had done the merit, the work. And the reason why I harp on this a little bit is because not only is it an important issue, but the Eureka Prizes in Australia that have just been awarded as well this week by the Australian Museum shows how that isn't the case. Because a significant portion in 10 out of the 17 categories are either women-dominated or women teams. And that is a huge an important thing. If you look at the leadership in STEM fields of under the categories in the Eureka Prizes, well, in that category, the finalists were majority women. And not just a majority of finalists in this category, for example, seven out of the nine final spots in that leadership category were women. Which means that these women are in key roles of power, influence, and great scientific research in all of the major institutions, both academic and private research across Australia. And this is likely the case in many other countries as well. Australia is good, but not the best in many categories, especially when it comes to gender equity. So it shows that it's possible to award women into the sciences and not just give it to always to the men and to avoid the general all-male panel, or in this case, with the Nobels, the all-male award prize winners. So let's now take a more positive angle on this and look at the actual winners of the Eureka Prizes in Australia this week. Now 
a bit of background, the Eureka Prizes were started in 1990 at the suggestion of famed science journalist in Australia, Robin Williams, that Australia needed a way to recognise and honour the achievements of Australian scientists. And the Australian Museum in Sydney presents these awards yearly. It's the night of night for Australian scientists and science communicators. Now, at the Eureka Prize this year, they have different categories, not as simple and as straightforward as the Nobels. There's more varied category listings. And one of the ones we're going to talk about first is the Eureka Prize for Infectious Disease Research. Now, this prize went to Professor Julie Bynes. Now, Professor Julie Bynes works at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in conjunction with Melbourne University. And for many, many years... They have been investigating and finding ways to tackle one of the most significant and devastating diseases that impacts newborns and young children across the world. And what they've been looking at in particular is the rotavirus. Now, the reason why the rotavirus is so challenging is because, well, it is a deadly disease if you get it, especially when you're young. Because around 250,000 children will die from this disease each year. That is a huge number. The worst part about it is that it's likely, in most cases, preventable. And I say preventable because the treatments for it actually exist. We have vaccines that work against rotavirus. I know this because my children have received them as part of, like most children in Australia, their normal round of vaccinations. The problem is that Australian infants, when they get these vaccines as just a part of the normal vaccine schedule, it is actually reasonably expensive for those vaccines to be made and delivered. And that's in Australia, where we're fortunate enough to have a government subsidy for these vaccinations. It's great for my children, but not great for children across the world who don't have access to that kind of high level, of expensive level of medical care. And in many developing countries, even with subsidies, the cost can be too exorbitant for vaccinations of the, for rotavirus. So if you consider around half the children across the world are pretty much born in a country where they don't have easy access to vaccines that pre are, prevent a major cause of death. And by the way, if you've ever had or been exposed to rotavirus, it's not fun because it basically can lead to a pretty severe form of gastroenteritis. So not only is it deadly, it's also not a great way to go out. So what has Professor Vines and her team been doing? Well, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute have been investigating the rotavirus for a very long time. In fact, it was first isolated in hospitals in Melbourne all the way back in 1978. And they've been chugging away with this harmless isolated form of the virus from 1978 onwards. And that's good because once you have an isolated harmless form of the virus, then you can make a vaccine, the traditional vaccine manufacturing method. And with this as their basis, they've been working on ways to improve and refine that vaccine. Not to refine to make it necessarily more effective, but refine to make it way easier to produce and cheaper to produce. This kind of streamlining of a product in order to make it be able to be widespread delivered is really important in mass public health initiatives. And what they found working with manufacturers in countries like Indonesia is that they can make it, produce it, and roll it out in large-scale late-phase trials. 
and find that it's around 75% effective against the virus, which is, you might think, well, that's not that great compared to all the fantastic COVID vaccine performance of around 98% that we see floating around the news. But you have to remember that that is remarkable in terms of vaccine development. 75% is still considered a very effective vaccine, and especially if you're able to make it and mass distribute it cheaply. It's a great win for public health across the world. One of the best parts about this treatment is that it's also an oral administered vaccine. And that's really good because this is again part of what makes it so easy to produce and also administer. Because most of the complexity in vaccine administration is that last mile. Okay, You can produce it in a factory, but then you have to get it to all the people, which means delivering and then safely administering. But if it's just some drops that you can deliver from a standard medicine dropper, that's actually quite achievable to be rolled out in a mass style. And that's exactly what Indonesia plans to do in 2023 in a wide-scale distribution of this kind of program. And great work from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and University of Melbourne under the direction of Professor Julie Bynes in leading the charge here to not only produce an effective treatment, but roll it out and ensure widespread access so that the 90 million children across the world who are at risk from this disease and don't have access to the two existing vaccines can also be protected safely. And that's why she was awarded the Eureka Prize for Infectious Disease Research. Now, the next prize we're going to focus on is the UNSW Eureka Prize for Scientific Research, which went to Associate Professor Diane McDougall and Dr. Gustavo Espinoza Verga from UTS. Now, both researchers published back in 2019 in the journal Nature Microbiology about the way in which cholera is managing to escape and evade detection and how it might have adapted some of the traits that make it so infectious. Now, this was recognised by the Australian Museum and the Eureka Prizes for its great contribution to our understanding of the disease of cholera itself, how these infectious disease outbreaks spreads, and also how we can use this knowledge to better understand how to develop control strategies against it. So what exactly did Associate Professor Diane McDougald and Dr. Gustavo Espinosa Verraga discover? Now, the first part of this is going to come back to something that we've talked about a lot of times before. In nature, there's always a battle between predator and prey. And this goes on over and over and over again, over aeons. Now, in medicine, we like to discuss, of course, the development of microbial resistance or antibacterial resistance, where the things that we're trying to treat to figure out what we're trying to treat them with and become resistant to that. We've spoken a lot about that. But the timescale in which humans have had to interact with uh, bacteria and viruses pales in comparison to the billions of years that bacteria and small organisms like protozoa have been conducting their fight to the death. Now, their arms race between protozoa and bacteria have been occurring since basically life emerged on this planet. And the interactions between these two things can lead to some surprising developments. 
The end result of this is, like with most cases of war and violence, is that there can be a lot of after-effects, unintended consequences, things that end up bearing the brunt, collateral damage. And in this case, humans, as the host, are the collateral damage of this war between protozoa and bacteria. Because the adaption strategy that pathogenic bacteria like Vibrio cholera have taken actually makes them stronger and more infectious to us, the host that ingests them. But that wasn't really their intent. Their intent was rather to survive and not get consumed and destroyed by the protozoa eating them. The fact that the host is not a small organism, but rather a much larger, much more complex one, is of no matter to Vibrio cholera. It was just trying to survive. So what actually does Vibrio cholera do? to have this great adaption. So let's talk a little bit about what is happening to Vibrio cholera and say a water body. Now we know that cholera can spread and survive really well in aquatic environments. Now what's happening there is it's just sort of floating around and it can interact with other things present in that same stagnant or potentially dirty water. Well, things like a, a protozoa, a small organism. Now what happens is that the cholera gets consumed by this small organism along with other food particles. The thing is that's not enough to take out the cholera. No, instead it gets encased in a membrane along with other expelled food vacuoles. This little bunch, this EFV as it's called, is encased in a membrane which contains both little chunks of remaining food and the Vibrio cholera itself and it just floats around in the water. The protozoa consumed it and, and spat it out, and now you have some of this Vibrio cholera actually trapped inside a membrane, but still there. Now, what means is that that membrane acts as a sort of a bubble, a buffer, something that protects that Vibrio cholera from damage in the water, whether that be something large, something small, even the presence of going into a human stomach. Because the human stomach, you know, it has things like, well, acids. It has things like antibiotics in it. It has a lot of other things that can really destroy Vibrio cholera. But not if Vibrio cholera is encased in a nice membrane. Now, over time, that membrane will get worn away by the acid and dissolve. But not after which the cholera has a chance to thrive and survive in this new environment. So this is really the problem. This membrane casing around the Vibrio cholera is one of the reasons why it can often be so damaging to people when they consume it and so difficult to treat, whether that be in a water body or even inside a person. Now, it's not that the bacteria itself has designed some kind of trait that enables them to survive being consumed by a human. It's more rather they designed a trait to enable them to be survived being eaten by a protozoa and that just happened to be super useful in evading being consumed by a human. Now the researchers used a mouse model to demonstrate this. When the pathogenic cells, the Vibrio cholera, were encased in this little membrane bubble, they were stronger and they were also way more infectious, colonizing the mouse model 10 times more efficiently than just consuming a free-form Vibrio cholera that was inside the water. So the Vibrio cholera that had been chowed down on by a protozoa and spat back out or digested out again was actually way more dangerous to human health. And it shows that the environmental condition of a cholera outbreak can actually can play a huge role because other creatures interact with that Vibrio cholera and can actually make it way worse. 
Now, this could apply not just to Vibrio cholerae. It could apply to other opportunistic pathogens that are released by a protozoa in the same kind of membrane encasing the, an EFV. And now, understanding this, it gives researchers a way to investigate the transmission and how this mechanism can be used by many other things to cause illness and sickness in humans and animals. So by knowing this, researchers can work at ways to better treat diseases like cholera by understanding the ways it can be enhanced by the environment it finds itself in and the adaptive traits that these creatures have taken on to survive for billions of years. And if we can understand that and the benefit that EFEs give them, this membrane encoding, we can also design treatments that will take this into consideration. Ways we can treat water and treat the disease inside people to keep people safe, knowing all the tools that these will have at their disposal. Now, this work was published back in 2019, and the work continues on going in the labs at UTS, and was one of the reasons why they were awarded the Eureka Prize for Science Research. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From understanding why cholera is so effective in invading human hosts to safe and cheap effective means to treating rotavirus across the world, we celebrated the Eureka Prize winners in 2021. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.